Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbiyi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When I first went to India as a kid, I vividly remember watching our taxi driver lose a parking space to a cow. Personally, I thought it was hilarious. But jokes aside, these stray cows are becoming quite a menace in India's cities. And getting a dinner reservation on Valentine's Day in Britain has become a bit easier. Fewer couples are going out. We look at why that is and what they and singletons alike are doing instead. First up, though. America has moved one step closer to sending tens of billions of dollars in military aid to its allies. On this vote, the yeas are 70, the nays are 29. The bill, as amended, passes. In a vote that began at 5.15 yesterday morning, the Senate passed a bill that would allocate funds to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan and humanitarian aid to Gaza. The decision came after an all-night session and hours of opposition speeches from Republican lawmakers. But in the end, 22 of them joined most Democratic senators to approve the legislation. The news was welcomed by Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who thanked the Senate for its share of support. But it still has to pass a Republican-controlled House. And that's not going to be easy. Funding for foreign wars has become a dividing line in the party. Earlier this week, presidential hopeful Donald Trump even floated the idea of hanging some NATO members out to dry. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay. His comments and wrangling in Washington will have allies spooked. So could the fate of this bill end up hurting America's credibility on the world stage? Even though the Senate passed the foreign aid bill pretty easily, Republicans are still divided. Adam O'Neill is our Washington correspondent. You saw that within the Senate vote where most Republicans voted against it, and you see it even more so in the House, which is controlled by Republicans and which will not be taking it up for a vote, at least in its current form. And if the bill dies, which seems likely, it's not going to be very helpful for America as it tries to come back as a more reliable ally after President Trump 
in his time in office, but also after Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, which hurt America's standing. Adam, let's take a closer look at this bill. What exactly is in it? You have $60 billion for Ukraine. That's the main part of it. It's about two-thirds of the bill. So that's $14 billion that allows Ukraine to rearm itself with purchases of weapons and munitions, another $15 billion to provide military training, intelligence sharing, $8 billion to help Ukraine fund its basic operations. And within that, there's a provision that does not allow the U.S. to provide direct support for Ukrainian pensions, because that was a bit of a controversy with conservatives, and that was a concession to the right. But beyond the Ukraine funding, you have $14 billion for Israel, another $10 billion for humanitarian aid, particularly meant for Gaza, given the war that's going on there, plus several billion dollars for the Indo-Pacific, whether that's purchasing submarines or building submarines or helping Taiwan with weapons. Democrats and many Republicans will point out that this funding is not merely charity, but money meant to shore up America's interests, whether it's in the Middle East, Eastern Europe, or East Asia. For Republicans in Congress who think they can oppose funding for Ukraine and not be held accountable, history is watching. History is watching. History is watching. Failure to support Ukraine at this critical moment will never be forgotten. This bipartisan bill sends a... President Biden has weighed in on this. I'm not sure if that's the most useful thing for persuading Republicans, but he's saying that the funding for Ukraine is critical and that Republicans need to hold a vote in the House. Now, beyond that spat you mentioned over the Ukrainian pensions, what else is dividing the Republicans? It's a mixture. Right. I think that there's a majority in the House and Senate that all things equal would like to support Ukraine. They think Vladimir Putin is a bad guy and that it's not helpful when authoritarian countries invade democracies. Many of them will say, though, that America's border is in a tremendous crisis and we can't be sending tens of billions of dollars to other countries before we fix our own issues with the border. Some are fiscal conservatives who think that the United States, 30 plus trillion dollars in debt, shouldn't be in the business of funding these other countries and helping them out with their problems. And then many Republicans simply have kind of embraced the isolationist tendencies that used to characterize the party a century ago and simply think that the United States makes the world worse when it goes out and interacts with the rest of the world. And some are very few, I would say a minority within the minority are just outright pro-Russia and think that Ukraine caused this conflict or somehow deserved it. And it's best if the United States just lets Russia quickly win the war and moves on beyond that. And, you know, it's also worth noting that it's although Republicans are the primary opposition, there are also many Democrats uh, on the Hill who oppose this. You have Senator Bernie Sanders, who's not a Democrat, but he caucuses with them. Jeff Merkley, who voted against the bill because of its funding for Israel. And if the House were to take up a vote, members of a far left, very progressive caucus known as the Squad, most prominent among them is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York. They're almost certain to vote against the legislation, too. So then, Adam, what are this bill's chances in the House? Not great. The Speaker and the leadership in the House can decide what bills get votes. And Speaker Johnson has made clear we're not going to vote on this, at least in its current form. He said some nice things about Ukraine in the past and their desire to remain a free country and not be invaded. But he's also said that the United States needs to focus on its own border and also that the House has to focus on government funding bills. There might be a government shutdown in a couple of weeks if they're not able to resolve that issue. So in short, he doesn't want to take this bill up for a vote. And even if he did, some far-right members of the House, because the Republican majority is so thin, could actually remove him as speaker. That said, there's something called a discharge petition. 
And without getting too into the weeds of the parliamentary maneuvering, essentially the House is a majoritarian institution, and if a majority of its members want to force a vote on something, they can. The problem is you have Democrats, the progressives who oppose voting for the bill because of the Israel legislation, and then you have far-right conservatives who don't want to do it, but also even pro-Ukraine Republicans wouldn't necessarily want to force a vote because that would undermine leadership and it would almost guarantee that they're challenged when they run for re-election by another Republican. So when I talk to Republicans on the Hill, whether they're pro-Ukraine or anti-Ukraine, pretty much all of them are pessimistic about its chances for even getting a vote. So then what if this bill doesn't pass at all? Well, we've already seen the effects on the battlefield in Ukraine because it's been quite some time since the funding from the previous package ran out. But it's also a bigger question than what happens in the trenches in Eastern Europe. There are questions about American credibility. So, yeah, maybe President Biden can authorize some money unilaterally or as an executive order working through the Pentagon. But American allies don't really see that as the actions of a reliable partner. It's a really bad look for the United States, whether you're in Taiwan, Japan, other parts of Europe. When President Biden announces we're going to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes for Ukraine— And he can't deliver. Whether that's his fault or not, it still is tremendously damaging to America's view. And in a time when Donald Trump is leading in many polls, it terrifies a lot of American allies and a lot of dictators and authoritarians and revanchist powers look at this and they have to be kind of salivating at the idea of a more isolationist America that's less involved in world affairs. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. So the other day I was driving down this extremely snazzy new motorway in the middle of India. Lena Shipper is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief going at like, I don't know, 50, 60 miles an hour or something, thinking to myself, this is amazing. It's probably the fastest I've ever managed to go in a car in this country because very frequently the roads are quite bumpy or end suddenly or that kind of thing. So I was very happy. And then I turned the corner and in front of me, there's just a large herd of cows in the middle of this motorway. Looks like they've been there for a very long time because, you know, all the cow poo around and... The centre of reservation's been uh, consumed by the cows and you just have to do this very sudden braking manoeuvre in order not to crash into them. So this is not actually particularly unusual because stray cows have long been a menace in India. Sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah, so the 
Cows are typically male calves or older milk cows, which don't really have very much commercial value anymore. And the owners can't afford to keep them, so they let them loose and they just sort of wander around and abandoned on the streets. They feed on plastic bags, they eat rubbish, they cause car crashes, although mine thankfully did not cause a car crash, and they raid farmers' crops. So they're a really big problem. Lena, how big a problem are we talking here? How many stray cattle are roaming the streets of India? So there were an estimated 5 million of them in 2019, and it's become worse since then, according to several government estimates. The problem is possibly slightly worse in North India, but exists across the country and has a lot to do with the Hindu taboo on cow slaughter. So there's long been laws in India banning the slaughter of cows. But in recent years, it's gone further than simply a religious taboo. Okay, before we go into the other reasons, tell us a bit more about this Hindu taboo. In the Hindu faith, cows are associated with divine beneficence and they're very highly venerated. So people garland them with flowers and paint them for religious festivals and they generally have very high status among religious Hindus. It's not the case all over India. There are some states where people eat beef. It's totally fine and acceptable. But particularly in northern India, this taboo is very strong. And it has in recent years become much more politically important, both at the national level and at the state level in the north, because the BJP, the party of Narendra Modi, has integrated the taboo into its political ideology. Uttar Pradesh is also known as UP. It's a state in northern India which has about 240 million people. The government of Uttar Pradesh, which has been ruled by the BJP since 2017, tightened anti-slaughter laws for cows. And this has happened in lots of other states across the country. So what has happened, these laws have further reduced the options for farmers to dispose of unwanted animals that they can't afford to keep. But there's also something darker at play. Darker in what way? So what's happened is the veneration of cows and the taboo on slaughtering them has played a very big role in the Hindutva ideology propagated by uh, Narendra Modi's BJP. And it has served to facilitate attacks on other religious groups. So what's happened is so-called cow vigilante groups, essentially thuggish Hindu nationalist activists, will attack traders and specifically Muslim traders whom they suspect of transporting cattle for slaughter. And these people operate largely with impunity in some places and in some states even alongside the police. So they've become a sort of very influential and quite scary political force in some places. We've talked on the show before about the rise of Hindu nationalism and its associations with the BJP party in India. Is this a part of that broader issue? Yes. So if you look again at Uttar Pradesh, for instance, the government there has recently started a new cow census. The state's home to about 240 million people and maybe about 20 million cattle. And the new bovine census is particularly interesting because it highlights a very stark contrast between the Indian government's interest in counting cows and counting people. So the country's human census, which is usually conducted every 10 years and has been since 1881, was postponed in 2021 owing to the pandemic. It's yet to be rescheduled. But this cow census in Uttar Pradesh is going to happen. And the BJP says it's meant to help protect cows better. But you could argue that their pro-cow policies in recent years have actually made the welfare of cattle worse rather than better. Well, it doesn't sound like they're having the best time. I mean, you mentioned earlier that they eat rubbish on the side of the road. 
the other side of the government's pro-cow policies has to do with protecting them and erecting shelters to keep the cows that are no longer allowed to be slaughtered. So to mitigate the problem of stray cattle in UP, the BJP government basically promised they would care for the ageing livestock that was no longer going to be slaughtered. The government set up some of its own shelters, but it's also doled out subsidies to private ones. I went to one in Noida, which is a city in UP across the Yamuna River from Delhi. And there were around 160 cows basically sort of squeezed into a crowded patch in the neighbourhood right next to a busy road. We met some guys there who said they were basically taking time off from their jobs as bank clerks and insurance salesmen to volunteer to take care of the cows because they care about cows as religious Hindus and they want to protect them. But when we talked to them for a bit longer, it became clear that they had quite a lot of non-bovine interests as well. So besides looking after the cows, they scanned the neighbourhood for signs of love jihad, which is a conspiracy theory that alleges Muslim men go around seducing Hindu girls in order to convert them and produce Muslim babies. Land jihad, alleged attempts by Muslims to take land, and very dangerous Christian missionaries. So these guys were telling us that one of the things they do is press local police to prosecute such crimes, as they call them. And if the census finds, as is expected, that the number of stray cows has grown, operations like this one are sure to proliferate. Whether or not that's good for cows is questionable. Lena, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. They say that love conquers all, including, it seems, changing consumer behaviour. We often go out, but I think we might do one of those MS or Waitrose dine-in for two meals this year. not doing anything. We don't have any plans. I think we're just going to watch TV together, maybe order some food in. Cool. I might just treat myself to a candle or something, if I'm honest with you. In post-Brexit, post-pandemic, mid-cost-of-living crisis Britain, Valentine's Day is another holiday that ain't what it used to be. British couples are more likely to stay in on February 14th than they were a few years ago. Vinjeru Mkandawire is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. That's because of tighter budgets and hybrid lifestyles. Four years on, the pandemic and now inflation have changed consumer preferences and are transforming the business playbook for Valentine's Day. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean by hybrid lifestyles? The idea that we're spending a lot more time at home, a lot more time online, and we are being a lot more selective about the reasons we choose to leave our house. So for instance, one of the things that we found in our research was that people are going to the office less, but they're traveling more, they're booking more flights. And so some habits from the pandemic have stuck. So bottom line, fewer and fewer couples, people are going out for good old fashioned Valentine's Day dinner. On average, consumers are now spending 66 more minutes at home every day compared with pre-lockdown. And when we look at public transport figures for Valentine's Day last year, just over 8 million people used London's buses and tubes, about 22% fewer than on the same day in 2020. Also, spending at restaurants in January fell 11.6% year on year. So a Valentine's dinner then for an increasing number of people is a takeaway. Exactly. And couples deciding to eat in have lots of options, more than before the pandemic anyway. 
Restaurants now do DIY meal kits where they deliver ingredients and recipes for chef-crafted meals directly to diners' homes. And some of the pandemic-born businesses have ditched bricks and mortar altogether. The online platform Why Hangry lets users hire private chefs to provide a restaurant-style meal at home. And because we are an inclusive show, let's talk about the singletons. While singletons can be homebodies too, the period between Christmas and Valentine's Day is actually peak season for dating apps. So Tinder matches globally were 10% higher than normal in the run-up to February 14th last year. And some of those matches will opt for virtual dates. About 6% of those polled in Britain will meet a romantic prospect online this Valentine's Day. That's slightly more than in Europe. And that's according to a survey by the research firm Global Web Index. And what about all the sort of ancillary industries around Valentine's Day? The people who might be, I guess you'd say, cashing in. Greeting cards, flowers, gifts, chocolates, all that business. Well, frugality will affect gift choices this year. According to Barclays, 43% of Britons are tightening their belts. Half of those intending to buy flowers on Valentine's Day are planning on skipping the florist and picking them up at a supermarket instead. And the blooms themselves are changing. That's because Brexit-related border checks kicked in on January 31st. This means that importing sunflowers could be a much more arduous process this year. And when demand is so time-sensitive, any delay is disastrous. Some florists were already turning away from red roses and opting for homegrown alternatives such as snowdrops or tulips. So Jason, what are you doing about gifts and flowers this Valentine's Day? Do you have any plans? Actually, this year I'm going to be a terrible partner. I'm going to be out of town on Valentine's Day. There is actually a dinner out planned. Always a good way to save money if you don't do it on Valentine's Day, if I may say so. And the flowers, in fact, have already been delivered. Daffodils, actually. Oh, perfect. She loves daffodils. She can't lose. Vinjero, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. On the topic of Valentine's and cute presents, we have a gift for you, one that is much cheaper than any fancy dinner. For this month, an annual subscription to Economist Podcast Plus is now half price, a steal at less than $2.50 a month. It will give you access to content like our most recent episode of The Weekend Intelligence, where we took on a beautiful love story against the backdrop of a protracted regional conflict. Swoon with us by following the link in the show notes or simply searching Economist Podcast Plus online to subscribe now. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.